All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Father, forgive us for what we must do. You forgive us and we'll forgive you. We'll forgive each other till we both turn blue. Then we'll whistle and go fishing up in heaven. Whistle and go fishing up in heaven. All right. Welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Show. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and we have got another great show for you this week. We have got Captain James Marco of Goliath Fishing and the Goliath Fishing Show, which is now on ESPN2. One of the most renowned guides in Southwest Florida, Captain Marco's know-how regarding Goliath grouper and tarpon fishing is beyond compare. And we'll be soliciting some of that know-how from Captain Marco today. In addition to talking with Captain Marco today, I'll be taking a look at Basil Hayden in today's bourbon break. And I'll also be counting down my top 10 soft body lures for targeting tarpon. So kick back, put your rod in a rack, pour a tall one, and get comfy for the Fishing Professor Show. And so you know, if you ever need it and you want to make a comment or leave a question about anything on the show, always feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. So turn down the lights, turn up the volume, and just imagine those smooth vocal transitions brought to you by Venus Flytrap as we get mellow on the Fishing Professor Show. All right. I am really excited to have Captain James Marco in the inshore offshore digital studio today. Captain Marco is a lifelong resident of the Southwest Florida coast where he has earned the reputation as the premier guide for targeting Goliath grouper. And that reputation has led to the development of the phenomenal television series, Goliath Fishing, the first two seasons of which are available on Amazon Prime. And the show has now been picked up by ESPN. Captain Marco is uh, beyond passionate about fishing, and that passion also drives his sincere interest in conservation. He's an active ocean researcher working on several projects in collaboration with research teams like those supported by Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. And he's actively involved in tagging programs and DNA sampling projects, particularly with Goliath Grouper and Tarpon. Now, I got to tell you, before we get him talking, this guy is high energy, and he brings not just passion to the world of recreational angling, but a persistent, positive attitude to the sport. You know, I'm probably not even going to have to ask him questions, but could probably just give him the mic, and we'd be in a treat in for a treat for the next couple of hours. So, Cap, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for being on the Rodcast. Awesome, man. It's awesome being here. We've been trying to do this for a while now. Yeah, no doubt. We've been having some connection uh, timing things, but I'm just thrilled to have you here. So yeah. let's start by talking about that show, which is going into the third season, I believe, and it's now been picked up by ESPN. That's a great achievement. Congrats on all that. And tell us what led you to making the show. Um, what led us to making the show is about eight years ago when I started in the industry, um, just was a normal captain and then started seeing a need for high-end content within the fishing industry. So started providing that with some brands that I still work with today and uh, just led to the brands asking me if we could do more and more and more. And eventually we came up with a pilot series and, and they really enjoyed it. The brands got behind it. And uh, yeah, we're on our third season. We start on ESPN actually this Saturday, which is crazy. 
uh, we'll be there for the whole second quarter. Um, season three was a lot of fun. It was challenging with COVID, but uh, we most definitely filmed some amazing content. You know, it's interesting that you talk about it in terms of content, because one of the things that I love about the Goliath Fishing Show is the remarkable footage you guys provide. And um, the woman, and forgive me, I'm blanking on her name. I should know this, but the woman who does your underwater filming is turning out some just magnificently beautiful, captivating images. That lemon shark episode is just stunning. Um, so you mentioned content and high quality content, but for your show and for the entire enterprise of recreational fishing in this digital media age, how crucial are the kinds of images and the kinds of content that are being produced? I think um, this day and age, uh, there's a lot more regular, normal fishermen. I mean, it seems like the last couple of years, the fishing industry has boomed with new fishermen. And I think they've all experienced a moment that was so visually stimulating it made them go back out and try to fish even harder. Um, with high-end content these days, we can actually capture those moments, you know, and we can capture them sometimes even better than what you experience just because of the slow-mo capabilities. I mean, we film over 168 frames per second. So, I mean, you get the whole visual of that fish just slow-mo doing his thing across the screen. So high-end content's become a crucial part in the industry just to show how awesome our sport really is. Yeah, that's awesome. And that kind of uh, filming, I mean, regular movies are usually filmed at 24 frames per second. So to have that kind of depth is amazing. So uh, I got to tell you, speaking of your, your, your filming, I absolutely love that drone shot in your title sequence where you're running the boat along the phosphorus pier. That's just a badass shot. That's just some cool stuff. Well, that shot you actually mentioned, it's funny, this isn't even like staged or anything, but that shot was actually meant a lot for me because that's where I first started Goliath Grouper Fishing. Um, the phosphorus docks in Boca Grande is very famous for holding giant Goliath grouper, and it's only 40 yards from the beach. The biggest one we've pulled off there is, you know, almost 600 pounds, and you take it up on the beach, you get to do DNA samples on it. It's better for the fish. It's, it's a really cool, unique area. I love it down there. So you're just back from Guatemala filming for the show. How was that, and what highlights from that can we look for on the show? Wow. Guatemala was absolutely uh, organized chaos. Uh, it's a third world country. Uh, culture shock. Everybody is so nice. The fishing, it's probably some of the best pelagic fishing I've ever experienced in my life. You know, with my career, I've been very blessed to travel the world and, and fish a lot of cool pelagics, but the billfish down there are insane. I mean, the one day we had 41 fish in our spread and we released 25 all pelagic sales, like crazy, crazy. That's amazing. So what can we look forward to this coming season on the ESPN show? It's pretty cool. This year um, kind of did some things different. Um, got one of my good buddies, Tito Ortiz, UFC legend, um, did an episode with him, um, did a two-part episode on Guatemala, just that amazing culture itself. Um, this season was actually only filmed with me and a 21 year old kid. You know, we, we were thinking outside the box, so it was very difficult for us this year, but, um, all the underwater shots, all the drone shots, all that stuff's me this year. It's, it was really, uh, it was, it was fun. It was challenging, but I felt like we got some of the best footage we've ever gotten just because it was just us two working together. 
That's cool. That's so cool. I can't wait to see all this. So let's put the show aside for a minute and let's talk about Goliath, Goliath grouper fishing, clearly kind of fishing that brought you the recognition that's led to opportunities like the Goliath fishing show. So I want to ask you about some Goliath strategies in a second, but first there aren't a lot of Goliath primary focus guides out there. I mean, certainly Tim Simos, Simos, the Goliath guru over at Port St. Lucie, but aside from you and him, there are not a lot of Goliath guides that reach the reputation status as you guys. So what got you so addicted to Goliath fishing? Uh, for me, it was the research that I was doing along with FWC. Um, I was granted a special activities license from one of the top researchers of the state. And all the data I was collecting was going straight to them to help, um, you know, future information that can help the board manage this fish better. Um, my job was to get them as much key scientific information about the genetic studies of these fish, their habitats, their DNA, and just provide that type of information to them. So that's what really got me uh, focused on that fish primarily. But I mean, to tell you the truth, I probably fished for tarpon more than, than anything, um, you know, started working with the tarpon programs there and doing research on those. So between the Goliath grouper and the tarpon, my year's pretty stacked between those two fish. Yeah. I'm going to get you to talk about both of those fish in a second. Um, so while we're, let's start with talking about some Goliath stuff and yeah. um, you and I were kind of messaging back and forth about this a couple of weeks ago, but after decades of closure, the FWC has just recently approved a very limited and very regulated Goliath harvest. Um, what are your thoughts on this turn in policy? Um, person, personally, I, th I thought it was the right move. Um, it is a slot. I believe it's between 24 and 34 inches. I could be wrong by a couple inches there. But those are the actual Goliath grouper you want to eat. You know, everybody thinks of this giant 600-pound Volkswagen fish We've had to do uh, DNA samples and fillet samples on these fish, the ones that we have found dead and stuff. And the meat's really bad. We found out that the bigger they are, the higher their mercury content is, almost three times more than a swordfish, which is one of the most high, highest mercury content fish out there. So the meat's actually not good. They, they've done studies that if you eat too much of it, you can actually become sick. So just like normal grouper that you find within the restaurants and your local fish market, those fish are generally filleted between 24 and 40 inches. Those are good fish. They don't have worms in them. The meat's still very good. So now that FWC has allowed that slot fish to be harvested, it's, it's going to most definitely help with population control. You know, there is a consumption out there of consumption. There is a, a thought process out there that, Goliath grouper are constantly stealing our fish off wrecks and stuff like that. And, and some of that is very true, but some of it's also how man has imprinted his foot. You know, we have changed the eating habits and the hunting habits of that fish by constantly going to the same wrecks, fishing at the same style, instead of just fishing it for, you know, 30, 40 minutes and moving on to another location. So those fish have become opportunist hunters, which has given them the reputation of being very pesky offshore. So I noticed in the show that you tend to do two kinds of Goliath fishing. The first is on rod and reel, and the second is on hand lines using what looks to be about a one inch nylon rope. Why the different approaches? So rod and reels, I mean, it's fun. It's great. Uh, Akuma rod and reels make a great setup for it. 
um, 50 wide Makaira's, you know, 500 pound tests. There's something about getting tugged with only 60 feet of line out on with a giant rod. It's most definitely uh, exhilarating. But over the years, I've learned the safest way to catch and release that fish and conduct studies on it is on the hand line. I literally use my anchor rope. It blows people of mine. You know, I'll go to my spot, I'll put the trolling motor in, and then I'll whip out the anchor and they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is our rope. This is what we're catching it on today. I'll tie a 500 um, mono leader to it, 500 pound mono leader, about eight feet. And I'll do a 20 odd hook, which is about the size of your hand. And I'll put a big meat and just let it sit on the bottom. Those Goliath grouper will come up and pick it up. And then uh, you literally hand line it up to the boat. It, it blows people's mind. It's a, it's a tug of war. And you generally have to fish up less than five minutes. It's not over um, stressed or anything like that. So it's going to have a healthy release. And uh, at the same time, you, you get to get that DNA samples that we're usually doing on those fish in, in a controlled manner that way. You can control the fish better with the anchor line next to the boat compared to a rod and reel. And it's just a lot. Yeah, that's really interesting. You mentioned the uh, the Akuma rod setup, and we should give a quick shout out to our buddies John Bretza and Dave Brown over at Akuma oh, yeah. for the awesome things they're awesome things they're doing. But on those setups, the rod you're using, I notice you're using that with a spiraled guide alignment. Why why is the spiraled guide? Which um, I was actually just talking to the guys at Mudhole about spiral guide alignments. So. So spiral guide alignments, also known as an acid wrap, is the best way to describe it is if you know on your rod and reel on a conventional setup, all the eyes are facing up towards the sky. On an acid wrap, your eye closest to your reel faces up towards the sky. And then as you get to the tip, the eyes actually twist that the tip of the fishing rod, the eye will be facing down towards the water. What that helps is with torque control. You'll see that when you're fighting a fish that big, you can never fight it straight up and down. You're going to torque it one way or another. And when you do, those eyes help align that better and makes it less stressful on the rod itself. That's really interesting. And particularly given that Akuma is now actually, you know, in mass market rods, putting out rods for that kind of heavy lift fishing. That's, that's pretty intriguing. Well, they do a lot of their heavy stuff over there because they're based out of California and they do the big tuna. Right. So, I mean, they're, they're used to the big rod setup. So it's similar, but you know, Blythe grouper, they just go straight up and down those tuna, like they'll run everywhere. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that with, uh, you know, I've had Bretza show me some of this stuff and I've always thought, God, you know, I just love how this tech development just puts, makes things better for the, for the angler. It's crazy what like the things have turned into like the last 10 years in the fishing industry, like everything is better, you know, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So let's shift away from Goliaths for a second. You already brought up your passion target as tarpon also. So let's talk tarpon. Now, as we turn our attention to the Silver Kings, I got to say that one of my two favorite episodes of the Goliath fishing show has to be season two, episode one. And not just because of those magnificent shots of tarpon throughout, but because you feature another great guide, our buddy, Will Burback. And Will deserves to be promoted as he really is the premier guide of North Tampa Bay area. Um, but rather than geeking out on Will, let's talk tarpon. And yeah, I should probably get Will on the show to talk tarpon too. You've been quoted as saying about tarpon, there's no fish I'm more addicted to. So of course, the setup question is, what is it about tarpon that evokes such a passion for you? Um, growing up here in Cape Coral, Florida, third generation, Boca Grande is literally a 15 minute boat ride. And Boca Grande is the biggest migration in the world of tarpon every year. Um, they come there for their spawn. There's nothing bigger migration wise with tarpon um, and anywhere that they go and spawn. 
So for about three months, it's just magical here. Uh, personally, I don't think there's a tougher fight in fish pound for pound. You can sit here and say a 600 pound marlin or whatever. And I'll be like, yeah, but how about a 600 pound tarpon? And then you're like, yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, if people have never fought that fish before, it does jump out of the water, but it jumps out so violent that it makes a sound very similar to like a helicopter. It's the air rushing through their gill plate. Um, it's a fish that you can fish visually you know you see them they have to come up for a piece of air for their air bladder they're one of the few fish in the world especially saltwater that do that and it keeps them buoyant so you get to visually hunt them as well man there's just something about tarpon it's it seems like the toughest fish to hook and when you do it's another whole ball game to land it and after it's all said and done if everything worked out it's very fulfilling as far as being felt accomplished that's an interesting point because I think for most tarpon anglers, um, we always talk about, did you jump a tarpon or did you land a tarpon? Because most people are just trying to get the hookup, which is a, you know, a success in and of itself, but he being able to get it alongside the boat is another thing. So yeah, I love the idea that just even jumping one, you've succeeded. Exactly. I mean, how many fish did you jump today is a very common phrase here. So let's talk tarpon strategy. Uh, in the show, I see you pitch a lot of live bait, what look like past crabs or calicos, maybe small blue crabs, particularly when you've got clients during the Boca Grande tarpon migration. Talk about your pro strategy with bait and tarpon. Uh, personally, I, I'm 99% of the time um, crabs, um, usually about the size of a half dollar. Um, in our particular area, we have this thing called a, oh my gosh, uh, King's Tide. And the water will move up about four feet into the flats. And as it gets sucked back out, it pulls all these crabs off the flat and the tarpon are just gulping them, gulping them, gulping them. You know, I'm a huge believer in matching the hatch, you know, which is a popular term of fishing. If any area that you go that you're using live bait, you try to see what is there, what is active. You try to match the color pattern. You know, there's a lot of variables, but matching the hatch is something that I've always believed in. And I believe that's what the tarpon are chewing on most of the time here. One of the things I also noticed in the show, and for those of you out there in the listening crew who haven't seen video of the tarpon migration and just the sheer numbers of boats trying to fish that migration in the past, that, you know, it's a, it's a form of combat fishing. It's akin to the Copper River in Alaska when the salmon are running. There are people everywhere. But you keep this very positive attitude the whole time. I mean, you, you've been there your whole life. You know that it can get angry out there sometimes between, you know, particularly um, non-professional guides who come in and they don't know how the, you know, the, the pattern of running down the, you know, floating down the channel works. How do you manage in all that chaos to keep that, po that positive attitude all the time? Well, when I was a young buck, when I was like 14, I did the pro tarpon series and stuff. And I saw all the older guys yelling and I never got it. And then in my early twenties, I started guiding there and I got it. I got it real quick. I realized why they were getting upset a lot. Um, I'm no angel. I most definitely have, have had my few shouting matches. Um, but over the years, I've learned the best tarpon fishermen in there, Mike, Mike Manning, Chris Slattery, Jay Withers, all these big name guys. They just keep their blinders on. They focus on their down machine. They focus on their clients. 
Um, they're not really worried about anybody around them just because of over the years, they've gained the respect of the anglers around them. And luckily I've been doing it long enough. I've most definitely built some respect as well. So I have followed their methods of just keeping the blinders on focusing on it because you're, you're not exaggerating. There's anywhere from 50 to hundred boats within a triangle of, you know, 300 yards. We're all fishing on top of each other. Um, it's amazing. I mean, visually Boca Grand tarpon fishing, this is not an exaggerated number. You'll see like 10,000 fish rolling a day and it just gets that blood flow going. Like they're here, they're here, they're here, they're here. And it's organized chaos, just like Guatemala. I've used that phrase twice now, but uh, it's, it's awesome, man. Any, all my clients, I mean, I'm, I'm booked out every year by the same clients because they just absolutely love it. You need to, you need to get a Captain Marco organized chaos t-shirt line going. There you go. I like that. New logo. <laughs> So you talked about the crabs and the match the hatch. Do you throw arties at all? And if so, what kinds of artificials do you recommend for tarpon? Uh, for tarpon, it depends. Um, if you're fishing them at night on the bridges, on the lights, which is a popular method, I like to use anything purple, um, mullet shaped as well. Yozuri makes a couple good hard baits for that. But there's also some soft plastics called no live bait, no live bait needed. They're down here in Florida. Um, you know, it's about a one ounce to a quarter ounce jig head with a six inch paddle. Um, that's a great method. Um, when I'm stocking them on the flats, if there's a lot of bait skipping on the surface, I'll also use like a Yozuri top water, um, skip it right across their face, but also like respect the pause, you know, just kind of flick it nice and rhythmic. Um, anybody that's fish tarpon has realized they're a very, very lazy fish, very lazy. So they want it in their face and they want it slow. So a twitch bait by Yozuri, anything, you know, six inches is usually a good bait to use, but uh, soft plastic wise, no live bait needed. And then just match the color to what you see around. If you're seeing mullet skipping around, go that gray color. If you're seeing a lot of shiny bait, you know, maybe go with that silver color. It just all depends. Excellent. You know, as you're talking about tarpon, particularly tarpon and Boca Grande, um, you know, you get that sense not only of your passion and your voice, but your knowledge of these fish and also your commitment to these fish and that place of Southwest Florida that's so important to you. And I, I'm reminded of that deep cultural history of tarpon fishing in the area and uh, A.W. Demick's 1911 legendary book, The Book of the Tarpon. And those scenes, man, when he's describing fishing Boca Grande Pass back in the 1910s and Captiva Pass and Pine Island and that whole region and the history of that book and the innovations that they came up with for fishing photography to get those first pictures of jumping tarpon. And now we get your show with this just wonderful high res, uh, you know, slow-mo video. And that becomes part of this larger history of tarpon fishing. How do you think about what you do as part of that larger history, uh, that cultural history of that part of Florida and tarpon fishing in that part of the world? I swear none of this is planned. You're like hitting everything right on the head. Uh, it's one of my favorite books. Um, I'm a big history buff. You know, our area, you've had Thomas Edison fish for tarpon, Henry Ford fish for tarpon. That's why they built their winter homes here in Fort Myers. Um, they said back in the day, you could walk on them. There was so many resident fish that would stay here after the migration. You could walk on them. And it's, it's cool to see the old black and white photos of how they did it and where we are today. Like it almost gives you that sense of like, they would be proud. You know, they're like, man, that's what we wanted to capture back in the day. But it's crazy to see those old photos of these guys like 
in full blown suits fishing for tarpon. Like that was just the style, you know, it, it was crazy. Um, but could you imagine like what they saw back then? Like I mean, what we see now, is, yeah, National Geographic, then it would have been on a whole new level. Yeah, I mean, those scenes of a tarpon jumping and you're fishing from a canoe wearing a suit. I mean, it's just, the, that book is just magnificent. And you get other great books like Tarpon Quest, you know, but that, yeah, but that, the, the book of the tarpon is just phenomenal. And it's written old style too, which is pretty cool. You know, it's challenging in a way. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's very clear that you're committed not just to the recreational fishing industry or activity, but your commitment extends, as you started to talk about before, uh, to research. Talk a little bit more about your research and why you need to pursue research and knowledge about the fish that you hunt. Um, anybody that's had a scientist on their boat, especially marine biologists, you learn so much from them. You know, the, those type of individuals are very, they're going to give you the right answer. They're not going to give you like, ah, maybe that's true. It's either yes or no with them. Um, so the research has was definitely changed my mentality about that is how I look at fish when I'm studying them. They're either doing this or they're not. It, there is no in between. So I think the research side of it has really, really opened my mind and visual visuals as far as how to hunt these fish. Plus the knowledge you learn. I mean, fun facts. Every client loves a fun fact about a fish and they've always got them. But I, I, the main reason I do it, of course, is at the end of the day, I'm help protecting my fishery. I'm help bringing knowledge to the people that manage it to hopefully it just keeps flourishing for, you know, future generations keep keep fishing. That's magnificent. Yeah, and I got it. You said it about the clients. I mean, I got to imagine that everything you learn in your research, that you get a client, you know, from out of state, you know, first time jumping a big tarpon, and to have a guide who can say, you know, the research shows this, that it, it also makes the knowledge experience, you know, spread beyond, you know, just the science scientific community to the angling community that a, a client gets to say, wow, I actually learned about the tarpon, not only caught the tarpon. I think that's fantastic. And that's an element I always try to bring to my charters is like, I want you to have a great time. I want you to catch a trophy fish, but at the same time, I want you to leave with a little bit of a knowledge and a little bit of understanding of why maybe we need to protect certain species a little bit better because they're awesome. I mean, they're awesome. Trust me. I mean, tarpon and Goliath, big sharks. I mean, all that stuff's awesome. And once you start learning the science behind them and how they act, you, you know, it's pretty cool. It's really cool. That's, that's great. That's fantastic. I love having these kinds of conversations about that. You know, I was thinking actually, when you were talking about, uh, we were talking a little bit here about the Demic book and I, I do a lot of work with, a, you know, I'm the fishing professor. I do a lot of fishing book work. One of my favorite books is um, Dr. Seuss's McGillicott's Pool. And then it's all about fishing, but the main character's name is Marco. And um, for years, I always wanted to have the Dr. Seuss fishing Marco tattoo. But I think the more I get to know you, I think it'd be a little creepy to have a Marco tattoo. Everywhere. <laughs> My favorite is probably Old Man in the Sea. Oh, of course. Yeah, that's fan that that's just a great book, um, Hemingway. And even the um, you know, the the movie version of that is just beautiful. Yeah. It's 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 a book that we can all relate to on and off the water. You know, you can fight so hard for something, but at the end of the day, sometimes outside factors just happen and you lose it but you still will always have that memory and that knowledge absolutely a phenomenal book all right so i want to wrap wrap up this conversation with the question that i ask everybody who comes on the fishing professor show 
And I'm going to ask you, what's your grail fish? What's the one fish that's out there on your bucket list that you're questing for that you can't wait to get? Okay. So I've got growing up here, I was always a shark fiend. Like I would always be beach fishing for sharks and stuff. It was just something I did as a kid. Um, I've gotten my great white, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Yeah. Accidentally caught it. It was cool. We got to do a bunch of research with it afterwards. Where did, um, where did you get that? I got to know. I'm a shark fanatic too. Dude, 14 miles out of Boca Grande. It was behind a shrimp boat. Really? Wow. Third one that they've ever seen caught here. It was crazy. It was about two years ago. Six and a half hour fight. Wow. I'm jealous. That's awesome. But uh, I would say my great white buffalo for sure has to be uh, a giant hammer. Um, I've hooked quite a few. Um, and I've just have not gotten one next to the boat to get that pitcher moment. They are just anybody that's ever fished for hammerhead, you, you know, it's like a unicorn, you know, you have a better chance of getting a tiger and all these other species than you do with those hammers. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're beautiful fish too. I was, um, kayak fishing, uh, off of Cedar key and I had a 14 foot hammerhead come right up to the kayak just laying right next to me. It, it freaks you out. And like, it, it's like it's intimidating. You know, that's the only way I can describe it. And I mean, I've had those moments and if anybody has seen one of those great hammers, it's like, I want that. I want to catch that. I want to fight that. I want, you know, all of that. I mean, I've gotten my big Marlin, I've gotten all my Marlin. I've got my big sales. Yeah. That, that hammer has probably the, the number one on my list for sure. Great grail fish. I love how that hammerhead dorsal fin is just, you know, that straight up almost pyramid so high out of the water. Just a great fish. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. What's yours? Uh, you know, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to make an embarrassing uh, statement here. Um, you know, I've got two that are on right at the top of my list. Um, I've never gotten a tarpon over a hundred. I still would like a big tarpon. Um, okay. And um, despite having tattoos of sailfish, I've never gotten a decent sized sail either. So we'll have to change that too. Yeah, those are, I mean, my, my grails are pretty easy right now because like you, I've done a lot of fishing on a lot of places, but for some reason, I just can't get the, the big tarpon or the and, sail. And dude, you are not like, that's not uncommon. I have so many like very, very world renowned fishermen and they're just like, I still haven't got my tarpon under a hundred, over a hundred pounds. I still haven't got my sailfish over a hundred pounds. And I'm like, wow, like I'm so lucky. Like me as an individual, like I get that for three months out of the year, whether I'm in Guatemala or here. And it's like, it's awesome. You know, let me think of another dumb one. Um, I want to catch one of those, uh, those vampire fish down in Belize. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Those look great. Uh, yeah. In fact, there are probably a lot of species uh, in South and Central America that I would love to catch, but I just don't think of them as I got to get this before, you know? Yeah. Same. I agree. I agree. And I think a lot of that also has to do, and I'm guessing you're the same is it's not only about the fish, it's about the places to go to get the fish. Like we, you know, we got some, yeah, I did an article for saltwater sportsman a while back um, on the big bonefish in Oahu. And so, you know, I've caught lots of bonefish. We caught some big bonefish in Hawaii, but the fact that you're catching bonefish in Hawaii is just kind of badass. That's so sick. Like that's most definitely on the bucket list too. I've never gotten a big Wahoo yet. A big Wahoo would be cool. I've yeah, never gotten done, I've done plenty of Wahoo. Yeah. That, I mean, that's part of the great thing about what we do though, right, man, is you're just constantly thinking of, I want to do this. I want to do that. Yeah. 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 No. And it is because there's so many different, I mean, species that are just, everybody's starting to target these days. Yep. Well, listen, man, thanks so much for being on the broadcast. It's always a great time talking to you, and I really appreciate you appearing on the show. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon, Sid.
dogs a barking. King went running after deer, wasn't scared of jumping off the truck in high gear. King went a sniffing and he would go, was the best old hound dog I ever did know. Oh yeah, a little Neil Young to kick off the bourbon break. One of my favorite artists, one of my favorite hound dog songs, all to lead into a discussion of one of my all-time favorite bourbons, Basil Hayden. Now, Basil Hayden comes to us from the Jim Beam line of bourbons, and it sits among its brethren in the Jim Beam small batch family, alongside Booker's, Baker's, and Knob Creek. Beam introduced Basil Hayden in 1992. It is certainly the lightest of these four brother bourbons, and also the lowest alcohol content coming in at 80 proof. It also has twice the rye content in its mash bill than the other three. Now, for a long time, Basil Hayden was identified as being aged eight years, but since 2014, the term, quote, artfully aged has replaced the eight-year identifier. It's a bit higher in price in the price range, and you can usually find a bottle for between 40 and 50 bucks. A lot of people ask me about the name origin of Basil Hayden, and you know me, my listening crew. I love the stories that go along with the bourbons, and the Basil Hayden name is pretty damn interesting. The bourbon is named for distiller Meredith Basil Hayden Sr., who was distilling bourbon back in 1792 using a high rye content. Years later, Hayden's grandson, Raymond B. Hayden, also a distiller, created a bourbon he named after his grandfather and called it Old Granddad. The Old Granddad bottles still have a picture of Old Basil Hayden on the bottles, and OGD is now also produced by the Jim Beam Distillers. Now, there's a lot of history available about the Hayden family and their ancestry in England. In fact, there's evidence of Simone de Hayden being knighted by Richard the Lionhearted in the Holy Land during the Third Crusade in the 1190s. Now, that's some serious heritage. And because of this heritage, I always find myself wanting not to say Basil Hayden, like I hear bartenders and bourbon fans say, but to add to that proper British pronunciation to Basil Hayden. But that inevitably leaves me thinking of Basil Fawlty, and then I get to thinking about Connie Booth and Manuel, and then I just start laughing and drinking, and it all turns out fine, but that's another matter, so back to Basil, not Basil. But it's not just the story that I love about this bourbon. It's its silky, sweet disposition, kind of like me. The nose on the Basil Hayden is all about the rye. There's some citrus here, too, and a bit of spice, but the rye owns the nose. The palate is by no means strong. Remember, this is an 80-proof bourbon. The taste holds that rye dominance with a blend of cherries and butterscotch with a hint of vanilla. The flavor isn't deep. It's a lighter bourbon, but crisp and sophisticated in its presence. It finishes rapidly with very little linger, and what it does offer as an adieu is reminiscent of a spice at the end of that sweetness. Now, I'll admit that a lot of bourbon enthusiasts find Basil Hayden to be too light to not have the deepness of flavor, particularly in the woody oak taste that other beam small batch bottles have. The lower proof also leaves a lot of people wanting more to the depth and taste, and I completely get that. This is not a complex bourbon, but it's really good. Because it's light, it makes a great neat pour, as water or even ice will thin out an already svelte bourbon. But like I said, I really like this. It's one of my favorites, no doubt. So give the old Basil Hayden a pour and you'll see what I mean. Oh, and as a final note and my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. 
The diller, distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on my keen sense of bourbon know-how that I have developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to the Salty Dog in Homer, Alaska, one of the coolest bars in the country and one of my favorite places to sit after a day of halibut fishing and put back a few. The Salty Dog's been serving drinks since 1957, but the building's been there since 1897, and what a great place it is. So here's to the three rings of marriage and the circus it is, the engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffer ring. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com. And now let's get back to the Crusades. All right, it is time for this week's top 10. And this week, given that we've just heard some really passionate talk about tarpon from Captain James Marco, I want to count down my top plastic lures for tarpon. Now, Captain Marco talked mostly about bait for tarpon, but I think we should expand the conversation to take a look at using soft-bodied plastics for Silver Kings as well. Now, this list was inspired by an article I wrote for Florida Sportsman back in April of 2019. And in that article, I took a look at all kinds of great lures for tarpon, particularly soft bodies. And for today's top 10, I'm going to look at my favorite soft body lures for tarpon. And in a future top 10, I'll take a look at my top 10 hard baits for tarpon. But let's get rolling. Ha! Tarpon joke. Rolling. Rolling, 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 keep them tarpon rolling. With the Fishing Professor's Top 10 Soft Body Lures for Tarpon. Coming in at number 10, let's kick it off with CNH's Sand Eels, which are just great lures for tarpon, especially when targeting smaller or juvenile fish. There's some speculation that smaller eels, like the, the 6.75 CNH Sand Eel, may remind tarpon of palolo worms, which on Keys Tarpon, the Keys Tarpon Gorge in late May and early June on palolo worms. However, palolo worms are most often red or green, and the sand eel imitators that seem to work best for tarpon are usually dark green or black. Since the C&H sand eels come in two color options, either black or pink, the palolo worm theory probably just falls apart. But nonetheless, the C&H sand eel is a great tarpon lure. All right, at number nine, I'm going with Berkeley's Power Eel. The Power Eel is part of Berkeley's Power Bait line, so this is a scented lure. It's rigged with a tandem hook, and the hooks are three, three X black nickel hooks for extra strength. They can be rigged multiple ways, including by adding a sinker for further cast. It's got good lifelike swimming action. They come in both 8- and 12-inch versions, and I say pick the size uh, depending on how large the tarpon are that you're targeting. At number 8, let's go with Hoagie Sand Eel. Talk about a realistic-looking eel imitator. The eyes on these things are incredible, as is the molded texture on these soft bodies. I also like the ribbing on the belly of these eels, which adds to the movement of the lure in the water. I also like the solidity of these lures. They come in two sizes, a 4.6-inch and a 7-inch version. I recommend rigging them with Hoagie's Barbarian Swimbait Weighted Hooks. All right, at number seven, I'm going with Hyperlastic Sandil Pro 7. 
This is a great lure designed by one of the best lure designers out there, Patrick Sibyl. The Sandale Pro is made from a newer kind of plastic, making it really durable. It's got incredible detail in the mold, and they come rigged with a great 2.5-ounce 6-aught jig head that really completes the look of the overall lure. You can also get it with a round bend hook, but I prefer the original PS hook, especially when targeting tarpon. You can also buy just the bodies and rig them the way you want. This is a slender lure with great tail action. One of the interesting features of this lure is that the hook path is molded into the body and the body has a patent pending spiked and slots keeper system, allowing for a firm hold on jig heads and making it easier to change or add jig heads. The hyperelastic sandal comes in six color patterns. All right, at number six, we've got Live Target's Commotion Mullet. This is a great hollow body, soft body design. It's a top water bait, and I love that the folks at Live Target sort of crop the tail segment off the lure and replace any plastic tail you might expect with a Colorado-style blade on the tail portion of the lure. That blade, like the lure's name suggests, creates commotion in the water and gives a great bubble trail and really gives off that wounded mullet vibe. I'm also a fan of the carbon steel wide gap double hook that sort of hugs the mullet body. It's available in two sizes, a three and a half inch that weighs five eighths of an ounce and a four inch that weighs three quarters of an ounce. They come in three lifelike color patterns. Just a great tarpon soft body lure. At number five, I'm going with one of my favorite lures, Egret Bates Voodoo Mullet. And yes, you can see my ridiculously silly review of the Voodoo Mullet on InventiveFishing.com or on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel. This mullet imitator combines realistic body design, exceptional swimming action, and rugged hardware ideal for targeting tarpon. Egret Bates Voodoo Mullet is a medium sink or slow sink soft plastic lure that features an eight-piece segmented body design that creates a realistic slithering swimming motion. The Voodoo Mullet is pre-rigged with strong VMC saltwater grade hooks. However, it should be noted that of all the lures discussed in this top 10, the Voodoo Mullet is the only lure to use treble hooks. For those of you wary of treble hooks, particularly when fishing catch and release, which is paramount in tarpon fishing, the hooks are rigged by way of split rings so you can replace them with aftermarket single hooks. The Voodoo Mullet is available in 3.5, 4.5, and 5.5 inch sizes and made from a tough thermoplastic uh, elastomer plastic, a TPE plastic. At number four, I'm going with Savage Gear's Real Eel. Now, I know I just said that the Voodoo Mullet is the only lure on this list that comes pre-rigged with treble hooks, and I need to modify that claim a bit because the Savage Gear Real Eel comes pre-rigged with treble hook on the belly of the lure, but this hook is removable, and the primary rigging for the Real Eel is a dorsal pointing single hook. The Savage Gear Real Eel comes in three sizes, 8, 12, and 16 inches, and is available in five colors. At number three, let's give props to a classic lure that has a reputation as one of the best tarpon lures ever molded. And of course, I'm talking about DOA's Terror Eyes. The Terror Eyes is a really fundamental soft-bodied lure for any inshore fishing scenario. But like I said, it has a great reputation as a top-tier tarpon lure, and I can vouch for its excellence as such. The standout feature of the Terror Eyes is the oversized eye, which is part of the internal jig head. The reflective holographic eye does a great job of attracting a predator's attention. The internalized jig head helps keep the lure swimming and reduces the possibility of snags. 
The DOA terrorized comes in three sizes, a tiny two inch version, a regular two and three quarter inch version, and the big one at four inches. I rely on the regular size for tarpon, though the tiny size is great when playing around with smaller juvenile tarpon. The terrorized are available in about 50 color options, giving you lots of options for local conditions or your personal preference. And that brings us to my runner-up for this week's top 10. And for that honored position, I'm giving due honors to Saltwater Assassin's 5 and 6-inch Sea Shad. The Sea Shad is a solid body soft plastic with a great paddle tail that gives the lure great swimming action. You can rig these like any soft body, but when tarpon fishing, I really prefer a wide gap weighted weedless hook. They're great with other jig heads as well. With 10 color variations, you should have no problem finding the right color for targeting tarpon in your region. But I have to say that black shad pattern has been great for me on tarpon. And that brings us to my favorite soft body lure for targeting tarpon. But before we get to it, let me recap the top nine. At number 10, CNH's Sand Eels. At number 9, Berkeley's Power Eel. At 10, Hoagie Sand Eel. At 7, Hyperelastic Sand Eel Pro 7. At 6, Live Targets Commotion Mullet. At 5, Egret Baits Voodoo Mullet. At 4, Savage Gear Real Eels. At 3, DOA's Terrorize. At number 2, Saltwater Assassin's 5 and 6 inch Sea Shad. And that brings us to my favorite soft body tarpon lure and that's hoagies i love both the hoagie original and the hoagie pro tail pre-rigged for tarpon i'm a particular fan of the pink white or black for tarpon in the seven eight or ten inch size the hoagie sand eel soft baits are great too but really it's that original eel and the pro tail eels that stand out as superior tarpon lures the original hoagies are designed for topwater fishing, and the molded rigging slot lets you rig these in a lot of ways. I actually like rigging with hoagies extra strong weighted swim bait hooks to pull the lure just a bit below the surface. The pro, pro tail eels come pre-rigged with phenomenal heavy grade barbarian jig hooks. I also really like the scaled finish on the mold of the pro eel, but mostly with both the original hoagie eel and the pro tail eel, it's the great swimming action that just makes the hoagie a big old chunk of tarpon candy. So yes, 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 my number one soft body tarpon lure is the hoagie original eel and the hoagie pro tail eel. All right, that wraps up this week's top 10. As always, if you think I've overlooked a great tarpon soft body, let me know. You can always email me with your thoughts and comments at sid at inventifishing.com. And of course, if you're a manufacturer of a great soft body tarpon lure that you feel I've overlooked, you can always email me as well and arrange to take me tarpon fishing to prove your lure's metal. I'm always open to fishing on your dime. As always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. And that's that. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of The Fishing Professor Show. I want to thank Captain James Marco for joining me in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio. Be sure to check out The Goliath Fishing Show on ESPN2 and streaming on Amazon Prime. You can also learn more about Captain Marco's charter service and his adventures at goliathfishing.com. Now, before we put this week's episode to bed, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The reel is spinning. I say again, the reel is spinning. 
And that wraps up this week's Fishing Professor Show. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to the channel so you don't miss a single episode. We've got a great new episode all ready to go for next week. And trust me, you don't want to miss it. In fact, no one you know wants to miss it. So be sure to share the Fishing Professor Show with your fishing pals, your loved ones, your second cousin twice removed, your nemesis, and everyone else you know or don't know. As always, if you have a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top tens, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific products, please feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. Be sure to check out the Inventive Fishing webpages and be sure to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!